0: Section thirty-six of the Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Plain Speaker: Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section thirty-six, on novelty and familiarity, Part Two. Imagination is, in this sense, sometimes truer than reality, for our passions being compacted of imagination quote, and our desires whetted by impatience and delay often lose some of their taste and essence with possession so in youth we look forward to the advances of age and feel them more strongly than when they arrive nor is this more extraordinary than that from the height of a precipice the descent below should make us giddy and that we should be less sensible of it when we come to the ground experience can teach us little i suspect after the first unfolding of our faculties and the first strong excitement of outward objects it can only add to or take away from our original impressions and the imagination can make out the addition as largely or feel the privation as sharply as the senses the little it can teach us which is to moderate our chagrins and sober our expectations to the dull standard of reality we will not learn reason pandas will and if we have been disappointed forty times we are only the more resolved that the forty-first time shall make up for all the rest, and our hope grows desperate as the chances are against it. A man who is wary is so naturally. He who is of a sanguine and credulous disposition will continue so in spite of warning. We hearken to no voice but that of our secret inclinations and native bias. Mr. Wordsworth, being asked why he admired the sleep of infancy, said he thought, quote, there was a grandeur in it, end quote. the reason of which is partly owing to the contrast of total unconsciousness to all the ills of life, and partly that it is the germ implying all the future good, an untouched, untold treasure. In the outset of life, all that is to come of it seems to press with double force upon the heart, and our yearnings after good and dread of evil are in proportion to the little we have known of either. The first abolitions of hope and fear in the human heart lift us to heaven or sink us to the abyss, but when served out to us in driblets and pulled by repetition, they lose their interest and effect. Or the dawn of experience, like that of day, shows the wide prospect stretched out before us and dressed in its liveliest colors. As we proceed, we tire of the length of the way and complain of its sameness. The path of life is stripped of its freshness and beauty. And as we grow acquainted with them, we become indifferent to weal or woe. The best part of our lives we pass in counting on what is to come, or in fancying what may have happened in real or fictitious story to others. I have had more pleasure in reading the adventures of a novel, and perhaps changing situations with the hero, than I ever had in my own. I do not think anyone can feel much happier, a greater degree of heart's ease, than I used to feel in reading Tristram Shandy, and Peregrine Pickle, and Tom Jones, and the Tatler, and Gilblas of Santillane, and Werther, and Boccaccio. It was some years after that I read the last, but his tales, quote, dallied with the innocence of love like the old time, end quote. The story of Federico Alberici affected me as if it had been my own case, and i saw his hawk upon her perch in the clear cold air and how fat and fair a bird she was as plain as ever i saw a picture of titian's and felt that i should have served her up as he did as a banquet for his mistress who came to visit him at his own poor farm i could wish that lord byron had employed himself while in italy in rescuing such a writer as boccaccio from unmerited obloquy instead of making those notable discoveries that pope was a poet and that Shakespeare was not one. Mrs. Inchbald was always a great favourite with me. There is the true soul of woman breathing from what she writes, as much as if you heard her voice. It is as if Venus had written books. I first read her simple story, of all places in the world, at M. No matter where it was, for it transported me out of myself.' "'I recollect walking out to escape from one of the tenderest parts "'in order to return to it again with double relish. "'An old crazy hand-organ was playing Robin Adair. "'A summer shower dropped mana on my head "'and slaked my feverish thirst of happiness. "'Her heroine, Miss Milner, was at my side. "'My dream has since been verified. "'How like it was to the reality. "'In truth, the reality itself was but a dream.' do i not still see that simple movement of her finger with which madame basil beckoned jean jacques to the seat at her feet the heightened colour that tinged her profile as she sat at her work netting the bunch of flowers in her hair is not the glow of youth and beauty in her cheek blended with the blushes of the roses in her hair do they not breathe the breath of love and what though the adventure was unfinished by either writer or reader is not the blank filled up with the rare and subtle spirit of fancy that imparts the fullness of delight to the air-drawn creations of brain? I once sat on a sunny bank in a field in which the green blades of corn waved in the fitful northern breeze, and read the letter in the New Eloise in which Saint-Preux describes the pays de I never felt what Shakespeare calls my glassy essence so much as then. My thoughts were pure and free. They took a tone from the objects before me and from the simple manners of the inhabitants of mountain scenery so well described in the letter. The style gave me the same sensation as the drops of morning dew before they are scorched by the sun, and I thought Julia did well to praise it. I wished I could have written such a letter. That wish, enhanced by my admiration of genius and the feeling of the objects around me, was accompanied with more pleasure. if i had written fifty such letters or had gained all the reputation of its immortal author of all the pictures prints or drawings i ever saw none ever gave me such satisfaction as the rude etchings at the top of rousseau's confessions there is a necromantic spell in the outlines imagination is a witch it is not even said anywhere that such is the case but I had got it into my head that the rude sketches of old-fashioned houses, stone walls, and stumps of trees represented the scenes at Annecy and Vevey, where he who relished all more sharply than others, and by his own intense aspirations after good, had nearly delivered mankind from the yoke of evil, first drew the breath of hope. Here love's golden wriggle bound his brows, and here fell from it. It was the partition wall between life and death to him, and all beyond it was a desert, and bade the lovely scenes at distance hail. I used to apply this line to the distant range of hills in a paltry landscape, which, however, had a tender vernal tone and a dewy freshness. I could look at them till my eyes filled with tears and my heart dissolved in faintness. Why do I recall the circumstance after a lapse of years with so much interest? Because I felt it then those feeble outlines were linked in my brain to the purest fondest yearnings after good that dim airy space contained my little all of hope buoyed up by charming fears the delight with which i dwelt upon it enhanced by my ignorance of what was in store for me was free from mortal grossness familiarity or disappointment and i drank pleasure out of the bosom of the silent hills and gleaming valleys as from a cup filled to the brim with love filters, and poisonous sweetness by the sorcerer's fancy. Mr. Opie used to consider it as an error to suppose that an artist's first works were necessarily crude and raw, and that he went on regularly improving on them afterwards. On the contrary, he maintained that they had the advantage of being done with all his heart and soul and might, that they contained his best thoughts, those which his genius most eagerly prompted and which he had matured and treasured up longest from the first dawn of art and nature on his mind and that his subsequent works were rather after-thoughts and the leavings and makeshifts of his invention there is a great deal of truth in this view of the matter poeta nascitur non fit that is it is the strong character and impulse of the mind that forces it out of its way and stamps itself upon outward objects not that is elicited and laboriously raised into artificial importance by contrivance and study. An improving actor, artist or poet, never becomes a great one. I have known such in my time who are always advancing by slow and sure steps to the height of their profession, but in the meantime some man of genius rose and passing them at once seized on the topmost round of ambition's ladder, so that they still remained in the second class." A volcano does not give warning when it will break out, nor a thunderbolt send word of its approach. Mr. Keene stamped himself the first night in Shylock. He never did any better. Mr. Kemble is the only great and truly impressive actor I remember who rose to his stately height by the interposition of art and gradations of merit. A man of genius is sui generis. To be known he need only to be seen. You can no more dispute whether he is one then you can dispute whether it is a panther that is shown you in a cage. Mrs Siddons did not succeed the first time she appeared on the London boards, but then it was in Garrick's time, who sent her back to the country. He startled and put her out in some part she had to play with him, by the amazing vividness and intrepidity of his style of acting. Yet old Dr. Chauncey, who frequented Sir Joshua Reynolds's, said that he was not himself in his latter days, that he got to play harlequin's tricks, and was too much in the trammels of the stage, and was quite different from what he was when he came out at Goodman's Fields, when he surprised the town in Richard as if he had dropped from the clouds, and his acting was all fire and air. Mrs. Siddons was hardly satisfied with the admiration of those who had only seen her latter performances, which were distinguished chiefly by their towering height and marble outline. She has been heard to exclaim, quote, "'You have seen me only in Lady Macbeth and Queen Catherine and Belvedere,' and Jane Shaw. You should have seen me when I played these characters alternately with Juliet, and Desdemona, and Callista, and the Morning Bride, night after night, when I first came from Bath.' End quote. If she indeed filled these parts with a beauty and tenderness equal to the sublimity of her other performances, one had only to see her in them and die. Lord Byron says that Lady Macbeth died when Mrs. Siddons left the stage. Could not even her acting help him to understand Shakespeare? Sir Joshua Reynolds, at a late period, saw some portraits he had done in early life, and lamented the little progress he had made. Yet he belonged to the laborious and climbing class. No one generation improves much upon another, no one individual improves much upon himself. What we impart to others we have within us, and we have it almost from the first. The strongest insight we obtain into nature is that which we receive from the broad light thrown upon it by the sudden development of our own faculties and feelings. Even in science the greatest discoveries have been made at an early age. Sir Isaac Newton was not twenty when he saw the apple fall to the ground. Harvey, I believe, discovered the circulation of the blood at eighteen. Berkeley was only six-and-twenty when he published his essay on vision hartley's great principle was developed in an inaugural's dissertation at college hume wrote his treatise on human nature while he was yet quite a young man hobbes put forth his metaphysical system very soon after he quitted the service of bacon i believe also that galileo leibniz and euler commenced their career of discovery quite young and i think it is only then before the mind becomes set in its own opinions or the dogma of others that it can have vigour or elasticity to throw off the load of prejudice and seize on new and extensive combinations of things in exploring new and doubtful tracts of speculation the mind strikes out true and original views as a drop of water hesitates at first what direction it shall take but afterwards follows its own course The very oscillation of the mind in its first perilous and staggering search after truth brings together extreme arguments and illustrations that would never occur in a more settled and methodized state of opinion, and felicitous suggestions turn up when we are trying experiments on the understanding, of which we can have no hope when we have once made up our minds to a conclusion, and only go over the previous steps that led to it, so that the greater number of opinions we have formed we are less capable of forming new ones, and slide into commonplaces according as we have them at hand to resort to it is easier taking the beaten path than making our way over bogs and precipices the great difficulty in philosophy is to come to every question with a mind fresh and unshackled by former theories though strengthened by exercise in information as in the practice of art the great thing is to retain our admiration of the beautiful in nature together with the power to imitate it and not from a want of this original feeling be enslaved by formal rules, or dazzled by the mere difficulties of execution. Habit is necessary to give power, but with the stimulus of novelty the love of truth and nature ceases through indolence or insensibility. Hence wisdom too commonly degenerates into prejudice, and skill into pedantry. Ask a metaphysician what subject he understands best, and he will tell you that which he knows the least about ask a musician to play a favorite tune and he will select an air the most difficult of execution if you ask an artist his opinion of a picture he will point to some defect in perspective or anatomy if an opera dancer wishes to impress you with an idea of his grace and accomplishments he will throw himself into the most distorted attitude possible who would not rather see a dance in the forest of montmorency on a summer's evening by a hundred laughing peasant girls and their partners who come to this scene for several miles round rushing through the forest glades as the heart panteth for the water brooks than all the pirouettes pied de and entrechats performed at the french opera by the whole corps de ballet yet the first only just contrived to exert their heels and not put their partners out whilst the last performed nothing but feats of dexterity and miracles of skill not one of which they could ever perform if they had not lost every idea of natural grace, ease, or decorum in habitual callousness or professional vanity, or had one feeling left which prompts their rustic rivals to run through the mazes of the dance, quote, with heedless haste and giddy cunning, end quote, while the leaves tremble to the festive sounds of music, and the error circles in gladder currents to their joyous movements. There was a dance in the pantomime at Govern Garden two years ago which I could have gone to see every night. I did go to see it every night that I could make an excuse for that purpose. It was nothing. It was childish. Yet I could not keep away from it. Some young people came out of a large twelfth cake, dressed in full court costume and danced a quadrille and then a minuet to some divine air. Was it that it put me in mind of my schoolboy days and of the large bunch of lilac that I used to send as a present to my partner?' Or, of times still longer past, the Court of Louis the Sixteenth, the Duke de Nemours, and the Princess of Cleves, or of the time when she, who was all grace, moved in measured steps before me and wafted me into Elysium, I know not how it was, but it came over the sense with power not to be resisted, quote, like the sweet South that breathes upon a bank of violets, stealing and giving odour. I mention these things to show as i think that pleasures are not like poppies spread you seize the flower the bloom is shed or like the snow falls in the river a moment white then melts for ever or like the borealis race that flit ere you can point their place or like the rainbow's lovely form vanishing amid the storm on the contrary i think they leave traces of themselves behind them durable and delightful even in proportion to the regrets accompanying them and which we relinquish only with our being the most irreconcilable disappointments are perhaps those which arise from our obtaining all we wish the opera figurant despises the peasant girl that dances on the green however much happier she may be or may be thought by the first the one can do what the other cannot pride is founded not on the sense of happiness but on the sense of power And this is one great source of self-congratulation if not of self-satisfaction this however is continually increasing or at least renewing with our advances in skill and the conquest of difficulties and accordingly there is no end of it while we live or till our faculties decay he who undertakes to master any art or science has cut himself out work enough to last the rest of his life and may promise himself all the enjoyment that is to be found in looking down with self-complacent triumph on the inferiority of others, or all the torment that there is in envying their success. There is no danger that the machine will ever stand still afterwards. Mandeville has endeavoured to show that if it were not for envy, malice, and all uncharitableness, mankind would perish of pure chagrin and ennui, and I am not in the humour to contradict him. The same spirit of emulation that urges us on to surpass others supplies us with a new source of satisfaction, of something which is at least the reverse of indifference and apathy, in the indefatigable exertion of our faculties and the perception of new and minor shades of distinction. These, if not so delightful, are more subtle and may be multiplied indefinitely. They borrow something of taste and pleasure from their first origin they dwindle away into mere abstractions the exercise whether of our minds or bodies sharpens and gives additional alacrity to our active impressions as the indulgence of our sensibility whether to pleasure or pain blunts our passive ones the will to do the power to think is a progressive faculty though not the capacity to feel otherwise the business of life could not go on If it were necessity alone that oiled the springs of society, people would grow tired and restive, they would lie down and die. But with us there comes a habit, a positive need of something to keep off the horror of vacancy. The sense of power has a sense of pleasure annexed to it, or what is practically a tantamount, an impulse, an endeavor, that carries us through the most tiresome drudgery or the hardest tasks. Indolence is a part of our nature, too. There is a vis at first, a difficulty in beginning or in leaving off. I have spun out this essay in a good measure from the dread I feel of entering upon new subjects. Some such reasoning is necessary to account for the headstrong and incurable violence of the passions when the will is once implicated. So in ambition, in avarice, in the love of gaming and of drinking, where the strong stimulus is its chief excitement, there is no hope of any termination. any pause or relaxation but we are hurried forward as by a fever when all sense of pleasure is dead and we only persevere as it were out of contradiction and in defiance of the obstacles the mortifications and privations we have to encounter The resistance of the will to outward circumstances its determination to create its own good or evil is also a part of the same constitution of the mind The solitary captive can make a companion of the spider that straggles into his cell, or find amusement in counting the nails in his dungeon door, while the proud lord that placed him there feels the death of solitude in crowded ballrooms and hot theatres, and turns with weariness from the scenes of luxury and dissipation. Defoe's romance is the finest possible exemplification of the manner in which our internal resources increase with our external wants. Our affections are enlarged and unfolded with time and acquaintance. If we like new books, new faces, new scenes, or hanker after those we have never seen, we also like old books, old faces, old haunts, "...round which, with tendrils strong as flesh and blood, our pastime and our happiness have grown." If we are repelled after a while by familiarity, or when the first gloss of novelty wears off, We are brought back from time to time by recurring recollections, and are at last wedded to them by a thousand associations. Passion is the undue irritation of the will from indulgence or opposition. Imagination is the anticipation of unknown good. Affection is the attachment we form to any object from its being connected with the habitual impression of numberless sources and ramifications of pleasure. The heart is the most central of all things. Our duties also, in which either our affections or our understandings are our teachers, are uniform, and must find us at our posts. If this is ever difficult at first, it is always easy in the end. The last pleasure in life is the sense of discharging our duty. Our physical pleasures, unless as they depend on imagination and opinion, undergo less alteration and are even more lasting than any other's. They return with a returning appetite, and are as good as new. We do not read the same book twice two days following, but we had rather eat the same dinner two days following than go without one. Our intellectual pleasures, which are spread out over a large service, are variable for that very reason, that they tire by repetition, and are diminished in comparison. Footnote. I remember Mr. Worthwood saying that he thought we had pleasanter days in the outside of life, but that our years slid on pretty even, one with another, as we gained in variety and richness what we lost in intensity. This balance of pleasure can, however, only be hoped for by those who retain the best feelings of their early youth, and sometimes deign to look out of their own minds into those of others. For without this we shall grow weary of the continual contemplation of self, particularly as that self will be a very shabby one. End footnote. Our physical ones have but one condition for their duration and sincerity that is that they shall be unforced and natural our passions of a grosser kind wear out before our senses but in ordinary cases they grow indolent and conform to habit instead of becoming impatient and inordinate from a desire of change as we are satisfied with more moderate bodily exercise in age or middle life than we are in youth upon the whole there are many things to prop up and reinforce our fondness for existence, after the intoxication of our first acquaintance with it, it is over. Health, a walk and the appetite it creates, a book, the doing a good-natured or friendly action, are satisfactions that hold out to the last, and with these, and any others to aid us, that fall harmlessly in our way, we may make a shift for a few seasons, after having exhausted the short-lived transports of an eager and enthusiastic imagination and without being under the necessity of hanging or drowning ourselves as soon as we come to years of discretion. End of section 36